Tonight we begin at Matthew chapter 18, and this sort of marks somewhat of a shift over the next couple chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. For many chapters, as we made our way through Matthew, we saw that there was a building tension, a building conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, This sort of came to a head a few chapters ago, and then we had these dramatic chapters, especially chapters um, 16, where Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, and then Jesus revealed to Peter and the rest of his disciples more explicitly than he had ever revealed before exactly the nature of his ministry and that he was going to go to Jerusalem and that he was going to be crucified and that he would rise again the three, the third, on the third day. Now, this would come, of course, as a tremendous shock to the disciples. They would wonder... Uh, How could this be? Uh, This is the man we followed. This is the man we've supported. But nevertheless, Jesus gave them great confidence. And we saw last chapter, part of the way that Jesus gave confidence to them was with the miracle of the transfiguration. If you were beginning to lose your confidence in who Jesus was and what he came to do, seeing him transfigured before your very eyes with Moses and Elijah right there with him, and then to hear a voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. I think that would do something to restore your confidence in who Jesus was and what he had come to do. So now, as we come into chapter 18, we're going to see Jesus instructing his disciples into how they should live and how they should conduct themselves towards one another. This will also continue on into Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus speaks about marriage and divorce and family issues. But tonight we want to concern ourselves with the first half of Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus is speaking to us with the overall theme of how we should get along with one another. You have the idea, here's Jesus, it's in the last month or so of his earthly ministry before his crucifixion, and he's saying, I've got to leave behind a community that knows how to get along with each other because they will carry on the work that I've begun here into the generations past or afterwards. Verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's very interesting as you read the Gospels, you find that the disciples were often very concerned about the issue of greatness. You know, other groups of men who want to study theology or ministry or or some way to serve God or devote themselves to God, often they're asking very profound questions, right? They'll stay up very late at night discussing the inerrancy of Scripture. They'll discuss predestination and free will. They'll discuss all these uh, difficult theological questions that have troubled uh, students of the Scriptures for a long time. What was it that the disciples liked to debate? Which one of them was the greatest? And it seems that what they specifically have in mind here is they have in mind the idea of when Jesus comes into the administration of his kingdom, when Jesus is recognized as sort of the king over the Jews, when he comes into his political kingdom, who is going to have the highest offices? That very much seems to be their thought. They're thinking of a very temporal, time-bound Messiah and a temporal, time-bound kingdom. 
You can just imagine the disciples arguing among themselves. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I think he's the greatest. And then it's almost with, they, they, they turn to Jesus in verse 1, and they say, okay, Jesus, will you settle this for us? Look at Peter. He, he just thinks he's the greatest. He, he thinks he's the number one among us all. And, and then look at John. John, he seems to be, well, and James, there's no stopping him. And then look at this fellow over here. Judas, he seems to have a claim for greatness and all these different. Jesus, would you settle this argument for us? Please, Jesus, which one of us is your favorite? Which one of us is greatest? Which one of us will have the highest position with the most authority when you come into your political kingdom? When you think about it in those terms, the response of Jesus, beginning now in verse 2, must have been shocking to the disciples. Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, you know, maybe I should just stop right there. Jesus might have answered the question, who is the greatest, but by pointing to himself, Right? Hello, guys. Who's greatest in the kingdom? Well, hello. Look at me. Aren't I the greatest in the kingdom? But instead, Jesus, instead of pointing directly to himself, he drew their attention to his nature by having them look at a little child as an example. I find it fascinating that verse 2 tells us that Jesus called a little child to him and the child came to him. Doesn't that tell you something about the character of Jesus? Will will a child come to every adult who calls to them? No. If that person has sort of a sour or a mean disposition, if there's a, a cross look upon their face, the child doesn't have anything to do with that adult. But it tells us something about the countenance of Jesus, about his personality, that he could go to a little child, little child, come over here, and the child would come to him. It also tells us something else. It tells us something about Peter. You know, if Peter really was to be regarded as the first pope in the way that popes are regarded by Roman Catholic theology and history, should not Jesus have said, I'll tell you who the greatest is in the kingdom. Hello, it's Peter. Doesn't he have the keys to the kingdom? Didn't I say that upon him? He thought, if the Roman Catholic theology on this particular point was correct, shouldn't Jesus have pointed to Peter? But he did not. Instead, Jesus took a little child, set him in the midst of them, and then began to talk to them about the child. Now, one more thing I want you to notice. There's a tradition that says that this child grew to be Ignatius of Antioch, who in later days became a great servant of the church, a a great writer, and and finally a martyr for Jesus Christ. It's a very shaky tradition. You can just see how people would love to associate this nameless child with somebody who lived at a later time. But people can't resist that temptation, and it seems like that's what they were doing right here. All right, back to our text now, verse 2. Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, as I picture in my mind Jesus taking that child, showing the child to the disciples, 
And then saying what he said here, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I think that, that as Jesus said that, there was a look of deep disappointment on the faces of the disciples. You see, they knew that in their day, children were regarded more as property than individuals. It was very much understood in that day that children were to be seen and not heard. And now Jesus says, if you really want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to be like a little child. You need to humble yourself and take the humble place that this child represents to enter the kingdom, much less be great in the kingdom, right? First, Jesus just talks about entering the kingdom of heaven. Guys, you have to give up your ideas of greatness, your ideas of glory, your ideas of what it means to be on top if you just want to enter the kingdom of heaven. Please remember that a child was a person of little or no importance in Jesus' society. He was completely under the authority of his parents or other elders in the community, and he was never taken seriously. He was only someone to be looked after. A child was never looked up to. And that's what the disciples had in their minds, right? When they said, who is the greatest? They wanted to know how many people would be looking up to them. And Jesus says, no, get that out of your mind. A child nobody looks up to, and that's what you'll have to be to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You think about it, children aren't threatening. Have you ever been afraid to meet a five-year-old on a dark street? Never. It's not intimidating. When we have a tough, intimidating kind of presence, that's not like Jesus. Children also aren't very good at deceiving other people, are they? They're they're pretty miserable failures at fooling their parents. Now, parents know this. Children don't. Children, a little five-year-old, will think that it's doing such a clever job at deceiving mother or father. They'll never, ever know what I'm trying to do. And yet it's so completely obvious to the parents that the child is lying or trying to cover up some little transgression that the child committed. But that shows us that when we are good at hiding ourselves, when we are good at deceiving other people, we're not like Jesus. Now, please understand, I don't think you can say that this is a perfect illustration. I don't think that children are set up as an ideal of innocence. Because the only way you can say a child is innocent is by comparing them to an adult. Because in and of themselves, children aren't innocent. Parents, you don't have to teach your children how to sin, do you? You have to teach them how to do well. You don't have to teach your children how to lie. They pick it up all on their own. No, children aren't so much innocent, although you could say they are compared to adults. The the child isn't lifted up here as an example of purity or faith, but rather of humility and not being concerned for your social status. I find it very interesting what Jesus said there in verse 3. He said, unless you are converted and become as little children. Jesus knew that we have to be converted to be like little children. It isn't in our nature to take the low place. It isn't in our nature to humble ourselves this way. I remember hearing something once about the artist Pablo Picasso. I don't know what you think about Picasso's art and which period of his life. That's not the point of my discussion. 
But Picasso was known, at least in some periods of his life, for extremely simplistic work, extremely simplistic. And that was sort of his statement. And somebody was talking to him about his art, and they say, you know, you, you draw, you paint like a child. And Picasso looked at him and he said, it took me a lifetime to learn how to do that. Well, isn't it true? I mean, being like this child, having this mentality of a child, not being childlike, but taking a child as an example when it comes to humility and seeking after social status, it's something we have to be converted to be like. But in verse 4, Jesus said, whoever humbles himself as this little child is greatest in the kingdom. Again, can you just imagine for a moment the impression that made upon the disciples? They were the ones arguing about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. Which one of us are? And Jesus says, listen, the only way you're ever going to win this game is being like a little child who is utterly unconcerned about winning the game. You see, when we most fulfill the humble place that a child had in that culture, we are then on our way to greatness in the kingdom of God. And please don't think that this is done by false modesty. Doesn't sometimes false modesty pass for humility in our own day? Where where they think that, well, if you're really good at something, you should say that you're not good at it, right? Here's a man who's an expert guitar player, right? Very accomplished, really, really good guitar player. And you say, wow, you're good. And humility would say, no, I'm no good. I, I just somehow received this gift from heaven. I de- no, you practice diligently. You're good at what you do. But yet what a humble person would do with such a compliment is I think receive it, thank the person for being kind, and then forget about it rather quickly. Humility isn't so much self-abasement as it is simply a refusal to be self-focused. It's interesting about children They don't try to be humble. You don't look around and see children trying to be humble. It's the same way with people who really have this work of grace going on in their hearts. They're not called to imitate humility, but just to have the reality of it in their life. And there's one other thing that you have to think about here. They ask Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And we all know Who is the person who's actually greatest in the kingdom of God? It's Jesus himself. So don't you see that when Jesus put a child before them and talked to him about a child and the nature of a child uh, demonstrating the humility and the refusal to seek social status, don't you see that Jesus was actually describing himself? Jesus was not concerned about his own social status. Matter of fact, he went down in status all the way from the heavenly palaces that that exist in glory all the way down to earth. Now, wouldn't you say that's quite a drop in social status? I would think so. Jesus wasn't concerned with that. He, He didn't have to be the center of attention. Jesus couldn't deceive. He didn't have an intimidating presence. Jesus was truly humble like a child. When Jesus describes what it is to be greatest in the kingdom of God, he's actually describing himself. Now, verse 5. 
Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, since the nature of Jesus is like one of these little children, How we treat those who are humble like children shows what we think of the nature of Jesus. This is why it's so important what Jesus says in verses 5 and 6. He says, whoever receives one little child like this. Now, I don't think that Jesus meant merely someone who was actually a little child, right? He's pointing to the, I don't know why, I always imagine it to be a little boy. It could have been a little girl, right? I don't know if there's some subtlety in the ancient Greek text that indicates whether it was a girl or a boy. I'm just not aware of it. But but in my mind, I always pictured it to be a little boy. Jesus pointing to the little boy and saying, hey, look, you've got to receive every little child that comes to you. No, I think that's good. But But since Jesus was making the application to those who are greatest in the kingdom are like this little child, I think that that's the point that Jesus was really getting at. Listen, the humble people in the kingdom of God, those who aren't seeking their own status, the, the, those who, who have this humility as a child to have, whoever receives one like that, one little child like this in my name receives me. Again, this is what's so interesting about this. These people are not welcomed because they're great. Not because they're wise, not because they're mighty, but because they come in Jesus' name. They belong to him and they reflect some of the nature of Jesus. When people are being like Jesus and we reject them or neglect them, who are we rejecting or neglecting? We're rejecting Jesus. That's why it's so serious. It makes me think about this when I think about the relationship that the Apostle Paul had with the Corinthian church. It's most clear in the letter of 2 Corinthians. If you take a look at the letter of 2 Corinthians, you find that Paul goes back and forth with the Corinthians all over the time, especially about the ways that they have rejected him, about the ways that they are are unconcerned for Paul and they, they don't respect him over and over again. Now, I've read 2 Corinthians and I thought, Paul, why are you so touchy? Why are you so thin-skinned? Paul, are you going to the Corinthians and saying, oh, Corinthians, please like me. Please like me. I want you to like me. I want to be your favorite apostle. Can I please be your favorite apostle? Listen, that wasn't Paul's attitude in the slightest. But this is what Paul knew. Paul knew that the things they didn't like about Paul were actually things that they didn't like about Jesus. What didn't they like about Paul? They didn't like about Paul that he wasn't flashy enough. He wasn't spectacular enough. He wasn't eloquent enough. He didn't have all the things that say success and power and glory. Paul wasn't like that. You know what they would come to the rude awakening? Jesus didn't have those same things either. They didn't like Paul because he was humble like a child. And so they didn't receive him. This is why it's so important. When others are being like Jesus and we reject them or neglect them, we are actually rejecting Jesus himself. You know, it's actually easy to despise humble people. They are oftentimes the ones who seem to be the losers. 
They're the kind of people who will never make it in our competitive and aggressive and get-ahead world. Yet when we despise humble people, we are actually despising Jesus. And then in verse 6, Jesus says something that's a little bit different, but it's all just as strong. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, stop right there. Jesus takes it seriously when one of his little ones is led into sin. Little ones does not mean only children, but it means those who humble themselves as children in the way that Jesus described Did you know that it is a terrible sin to lead someone else into sin? Look, it's a wicked thing for you to sin, but it's a far greater evil to lead someone else into sin. But leading one of Jesus's little ones into sin is far worse because then it could be said that you are initiating someone into an instance or a pattern of sin that corrupts whatever innocence they once had i wonder if we think about that enough i have met christians who seem to have this attitude they seem to assume a low level of spirituality and obedience in their own christian life They just are assumed to that. Or maybe they've told themselves, I'm going to be like that for a season. You know, I'm just going to, look, I'll get serious about walking with God later. Right now, I'm going to have some fun. You know, I'm not turning my back against God, but I'm really not walking for him either. But no big deal. I'll just come back to him later. And I've seen this with my own eyes on more than one occasion. That person goes off and intentionally they plunge themselves into the things of the world. Now, invariably, when somebody does that, what do they do? They drag some other person with them. Now, the person justifies it for themselves because they say, look, I'm going to have my fun whatever fun that is. I'm going to enjoy these pleasures of the world, but then I'll repent. I'll come back to God. And as I say, I've seen this with my own eyes where that person later repents, but the person that they led into sin never does. And I think what a terrible stain that is upon their life for all of eternity. You led somebody into sin. You led somebody into falling away. And you might have recovered just fine, but they did not. We often have very little perception as to what our sin, what effect it will have on other people. You want to know how serious this is? Look at the rest of verse 6. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Can, can we just agree that this is a pretty severe punishment? Do, do you see what this? First of all, it's a millstone. Now, by the way, in the ancient Greek language, there's a few different words to describe millstones. This describes not the household millstone that a woman would use. This describes a larger millstone that would have to be pulled by a donkey. It's a big one. You take a big millstone, you tie it around a person's neck. I mean, how terrible is that? Listen, if you're going to tie a millstone around me and throw me in the sea, at least tie it to my feet. But to have it tied around my neck, even worse, and then thrown in, not just into, you know, three meters of water, but into the 
depths of the sea. It's plunging down, down. And the literal Greek there is in the deep part of the sea. Down, 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 down. It travels never to come up. A bad picture there. Unpleasant, to say the least. Please notice what Jesus said in verse 6. That would be better for you. That's the good news. What's going to happen to those who lead Jesus' little ones into sin will be an even greater punishment. So listen, we need to be very, very careful with the conduct of our lives, not only with the way we live personally, but to be aware that it is a terrible thing for us to lead other people into sin. Now, along the same lines, Jesus continues in verse 7, where he says, Woe to the world because of offenses. And you could see why he would say this, right? Because the offenses that come upon his little ones, he's thinking about it, he's grieved about it. So he says, Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. This first woe is a cry of pity for a world in danger of offenses. There's terrible things in the world. There are people who will draw you into sin. There's dangerous things. It's like a moral minefield out there every day in the world. And then Jesus says, For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. The woe second given is a warning to the one who brings or introduces evil to other people. Now listen, we, we live in a fallen world, and it's inevitable that sin and hurt and offenses come, yet the person who brings the offense is guilty before God and has no excuse before them. Now, this is a principle that's illustrated many times in the scriptures. We can easily imagine Joseph's brothers saying, Joseph, look how wonderfully God used it when we sold our brother Joseph into slavery. God used it to send him ahead of us into Egypt and to save the whole family and to save the whole world. Because God used it for good, it must not have been sin for us. And what would Jesus answer if Joseph's brothers tried to make that defense? He would say, not at all. Offenses must come. That is for certain. And God will use the offenses of others in our life. But you are still responsible as, as the one by whom the offense comes. I, I can imagine that you or I or somebody else, we sin against another person. We do something bad to them. And God, it is miraculous grace. He turns it around and works it for good in their life. And then we're patting ourselves on the back. Well, look, something great happened to them. Isn't that wonderful? No, no. God turned it around good for them. But yet, woe to us through whom the offenses come. I would have to say that the most dominant example of this in the Bible is the example of Judas himself. Jesus had to be betrayed, right? The scriptures had said so. And there was a man who was going to fulfill that. Now, could you imagine Judas trying to justify his betrayal of Jesus by saying, hey, it was just prophesied. Hey, look at all the good that came out of it, the salvation of the world. No, it was inevitable that offenses come, Judas, but you are still responsible as the one through whom the offense has come. 
Now, if God deals or promises to deal with those who offend his own, it shows us that he defends and protects his own. And you know what this teaches us? This teaches us that no other person can wreck our life. If they bring offense into our life, God will deal with them, but he won't forsake us for time and eternity. Isn't that a liberating thought? There is no other person who can wreck your life. Your life is in the hands of God. And God will manage it. And even though there may be people who come against you, maybe they come against you because they're an enemy, maybe they come against you because circumstances compel them to, whatever reason they come against you. There may be people who come against you, but God does not give them the power to ruin your life. Now, in mention of the severe judgment that will await some people, Jesus continues on with a thought in verse 8. Okay? But keep in mind, he talked about severe judgment for some people, right? Verse 8. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet and to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes than to be cast into hellfire. Now verse 8 tells us that if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Again, we reflect on the idea that some people only keep from sin if it is easy or convenient to do it. And Jesus says, no, you have to be willing to sacrifice something in fighting against sin. That that there's nothing worse than facing the righteous judgment of a righteous God. And so it's really better to sacrifice in the battle against sin now than to face the punishment of eternity later. Jesus' disciples have to deal with sin with this mentality. Now, what I find very interesting is that this is an almost word-for-word repetition of what Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, Jesus said something almost the same. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said it in the context of lust. And we can understand this in the context of lust, right? If your eye offends you, if your hand, if your foot, whatever, if my body takes me places I shouldn't go, if my eye looks at things I shouldn't see, whatever, if I touch things I shouldn't touch, it'd be better for me to cut those things off and to enter into heaven. Okay, we understand Jesus' thinking in that thing when it comes to lust. What I want you to see is Jesus took the same principle and he applied it right here to people who sin against one another. Isn't that interesting? The same principle applied to interpersonal sin. And this is something I think people oftentimes forget. They think of some sins. Oh, well, that's a bad sin. Ooh, lust. That's a bad sin. And it is a bad sin. How many lives have been destroyed? How many you know, families have been ruined? On and on and on. We can understand that quite well. But please understand, Jesus says just as plainly, that the violation of these interpersonal relationships, leading other people into sin, despising his little ones, having the pride and arrogance that is so unlike a little child, these are sins that demand sacrifice to fight against as well. 
do need to say something else. Jesus talked about cutting off the hand, cutting off the foot, gouging out the eyes, doing all that thing in the battle against sin. Let me say that there's a very significant problem in taking these words as literal instructions instead of as conveying an attitude. And it's sad to say that through the history of the church, there have been people who have literally cut off their hands because they sinned. Or, or they, they, they've scooped out their eyeball because they've sinned. Or they've cut off a foot. And the problem with this goes far beyond the obvious physical harm that somebody would bring upon themselves. But you know what the real problem with taking this as literal instead of conveying a literal attitude? I think Jesus is speaking literally here, but he was speaking about the attitude we should have in the battle against sin and not actually cutting off body parts. You know how I know this? Because cutting off actual body parts does not go far enough. That's the problem with it. If you cut off my hand, I can sin with my other hand. You cut off both my hands, I can sin with my feet. You cut off both my feet, I can sin uh, just sitting, you gouge out my eyes. I can still sin with my mind. Listen, as long as I am still a conscious being, I can sin. So taking these words of Jesus as applying to a physical reality is wrong because it doesn't go far enough. No, instead, how Jesus meant this to be understood clearly was it to reflect our attitude in the battle against sin. And then again, in verse 10, here's another reference to our responsibility to guard God's little ones. He says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. You should not despise one of God's little ones, And I think you could include little children in that, but beyond little children, I would say those who have the humble Christ-like character of a child, would you not? Because God's mind and eye is always on his little ones. We should treat them with love and respect. God will protect the humble. You should know one other thing about verse 10. Did you know that this is the verse that there are some people who come to and they rely upon this verse for the concept of a guardian angel, right? That, that, that each person, especially they think that children have guardian angels. I think some children I know have more than one guardian angel. It seems like they need a team to be around them all the time. I, I don't know. I mean, look, there's not much you can say about this as a, as a scriptural idea that there's a specific guardian angel for each individual. We do know from the Bible that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister those who will inherit salvation. We know that. But, but listen, there, there's no need to limit it to one specific guardian angel. All right, now on to verse 11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains and seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I find this little section in the Gospel of Matthew to be fascinating because Jesus said something very similar to this that's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. 
If you wanted to look it up, it's Luke chapter 15, verses 4 through 7. And in those verses, Jesus gives the same idea, the same parable or story of the shepherd with the sheep, and he has a 100 sheep, and one of them goes away, and he has 99 left, but he leaves the 99 so that he can go find the one that's straying. But it's in very different context, and I believe on different occasions that Jesus gave the two different parables. In Luke chapter 15, the, the idea is, God's concern for the unsaved person. Here, it's God's concern for one of his little ones that belong to him. Now, I think that they're both important principles. And if I had another time when I was teaching on Luke chapter 15, I would stress how it says that we should go out and seek after the lost. But here the idea seems to be that we should seek after each individual in the body of Christ and that each one of them is precious to Jesus. This story demonstrates the value that God places on individuals. He just doesn't look at the flock. Well, my, that's a big flock. There's a hundred sheep. There are about a hundred. One's gone. Who cares? He's still got most of the flock. No, just as a shepherd would care for individual sheep, so God cares for individuals. And Jesus is telling his disciples, his community that he's going to leave behind, you have to care for individuals. Jesus was emphasizing the love and the care that we should have for everybody in the Christian community. And we're tempted to not have a love and care for everybody in the Christian community. You see, sometimes we despise people because they're just one person, right? That's just one. What does it really matter? What does it really care? And we don't have a personal concern for them and for their soul. Secondly, Sometimes we despise people because they're little ones, right? That's what Jesus said there at verse 14. For one of these little ones who should be... Well, a little one, who cares about that, right? They're insignificant. They're not like one of the important people at church. The important people at church we care about. But the little, the insignificant people, well, you know, whatever. If we lose a few of them, whatever. So we're tempted because they're just one. We're tempted because they may be a little one. And finally, we can be tempted to forget about them because they have gone astray, right? (laughs) He's this little insignificant Christian, and they go astray. And the reaction oftentimes in the Christian community is, ah, who cares? Serves them right. Yeah, well, when they wake up, you know, then they should come back and know the attitude in the body of Christ should instead be, no, we're going to seek after that one, the one who is straying. And I know they're straying. I know they're being a dumb sheep. I know they're wandering where they shouldn't wander, away from the shepherd, away from the fold. But because Jesus values each individual, I am going to value them. How different that is from the conception of greatness that the world has, right? And the conception of greatness that the world has, who could be bothered with such a little insignificant one who's straying away, but in the conception of greatness that Jesus has, he goes, no, if you're great in the kingdom of God, you will have a care and a concern over the little ones, over the weak ones, over the ones who are straying away. Now, Jesus says in this little story, verse 13, If he should find it, assuredly I say to you, 
that he rejoices more over that sheep. When the shepherd found this little straying sheep that belonged to the flock, he was happy. He wasn't angry. He wasn't bitter. He didn't, you know, kick the sheep a little bit just because it made him work so hard. No, his joy was overflowing. You could say that this little parable, just in these few verses, it shows us the character of God's love. It's like the care that a shepherd gives for a lost sheep. It's individual love, right? Is it not? That that sheep was not just a number. That that sheep was a valued individual. God's love for you is an individual love. It's also a patient love. That shepherd had to seek a long time to find that sheep, right? Then as he leaves the mountains to go to the mountains and seek the one that is straying. He has to go over the mountains, over the hills, into this ravine, into that ravine. But it's a patient love. And thirdly, you could say that it is a seeking love. It's love that will seek after another person. And once it finds them, what is it? It is a rejoicing love. Then finally, after it's an individual love, a patient love, a seeking love, a rejoicing love, then it is a protecting love. Because what does the shepherd do with the sheep? It's okay, good, glad I checked in with you. All right, is everything okay? Well, then I'll see you later. No, the shepherd takes the sheep and puts it on his shoulder. And he says, I'm going to protect you and you are going to come home with me. And he brings the sheep back to the protection of the entire flock of sheep. And so even so, this reflects the heart of God towards his people. And again, the idea being, in the bigger context, Jesus is saying this is the heart that we should have for one another in the body of Christ. Now, continuing on this theme of how we should relate to each other in the body of Christ, we're going to get into the story of how Jesus says we should deal with conflict or offenses in the body of Christ, starting now at verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Let me say, if you don't know that sometimes Christians have trouble getting along with each other, then either you have had the most remarkably blessed Christian life that I've ever heard of, or you've been a Christian for about five days. But it's just true, is it not? And in my mind, it's to be expected. It really is. I will meet Christians sometimes, and they're very surprised, they're very shocked to find that there is conflict among Christians, that sometimes Christians don't get along. And they have to forgive one another and be patient with one another and bear long with one another. And it's like, well, it just shouldn't be. There shouldn't be these problems among Christians. And I say, no, these problems are just the fact. I take this from the letters of Paul, where repeatedly Paul says, love one another, forgive one another, suffer long with one another, bear with one another over and over again. It's just very natural. Paul assumes that there will be conflict among Christians. He doesn't just say, well, I'm so shocked that there's conflict among you. No. He just says, how you handle the conflict says a lot more about you and your Christian life than the existence of conflict. Okay. So there's going to be conflict among Christians. How should it be dealt with? 
Let me tell you, if we would just listen to Jesus and do what he says in this particular passage, it would go a long way towards healing and reconciling many of the conflicts that Christians have. Let's look again at verse 15. I read it once, we'll read it again. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. It is essential that we go to the offending brother or sister first. Not griping and gossiping to others, especially under the pretense of sharing a prayer request or or, or seeking counsel. Instead, we go to the party directly. Christians are so good at this. Not about facing conflicts directly. Christians are so good about gossiping under things, under the, 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 the pretense of getting counsel or about um, praying with another person about it. Now let me say this as well. It would be wrong for anyone to take Jesus' word here as a command to confront your brother with every sin that they commit against you. The Bible says that we should bear with one another and be long-suffering towards each other. Yet clearly there are some things that we can't suffer long with and that we must address. You can say that Jesus gives us two options when your brother sins against you. The first option is this. You can go to him directly and deal with it, or you can drop the matter entirely. Oh, they said something mean to me. Ah, forget it. It's all covered by the blood of Jesus. I'd said some mean things to you in my day. I'll just forget about it. You're entirely justified in doing that. That's bearing with one another. That's suffering long with each other. But let's just say that there's just something in you or something about what they said. You can't let it go like that. Well, then deal with it. But it is entirely good. It is entirely honorable to say, nope, I just drop it. I forget it. I'll never bring it up. I forgive them. There's no big deal. The other options that we often use holding on to bitterness or retaliation or gossiping to other people about the problem. Those options are not allowed. So what do we do? We go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You're protecting his dignity, are you not? Right, look, maybe you didn't even know that you did this to me. Oftentimes, have not we hurt somebody or offended somebody and we didn't even know that we did it. So if somebody comes to us and says, listen, I got to tell you that what you said here, you offended me. Can we not say, I am so sorry. I never intended to offend you. I am so sorry that I did this. Let me just make it up. Can we pray about this? Would you please forgive me? That would be the way to clear this up. But perhaps you realized when you spoke with this person about it that, that, that uh, you were right and that he was right in some ways and, and there was a, a resolution of the problem. You've solved it. You've gained it. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. You, you've also gained your brother because you have not wronged your brother by going to others with gossip and half the side of dispute. But can I tell you something in this verse that I've never noticed before until just looking at it this time? Let, let me read it to you the way that I've read it before. Okay, This is the way I've read it in my mind before. Um, Moreover, if brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you, you and him alone. 
If he repents, you've gained your brother. If he confesses he's sinned, you've gained your brother. Jesus didn't say that. What did he say? If he hears you. In other words, if he just receives what you have to say, if he just says, hmm, wow, I really got to think about that. No, you got to repent right now. Well, no, I really want to think about this. Listen, if he hears you, you've gained your brother. This is the problem. And I'll confess, it's my problem in such cases. It may not be any of your problems, but it's too often my problem. I get into a conflict like this, and for me, it becomes about winning or losing. And it's what you call a zero-sum game. In other words, I can only win if they lose. And they can only win if I lose. So who's going to win and who's going to lose? Well, we'll find out when we have our little confrontation, won't we? Isn't that beautiful for spreading the love of God in the body of Christ? No, it's terrible. Instead, it should be, listen, I just want to come to an understanding with my brother. I'm going to tell him how he's offended me. If he just receives it, if he just hears it, I'm not looking for a dramatic display of debrithness. I just want him to receive it. If he receives it, then I know God will do a work and I can leave it at rest. But what if he doesn't hear it? What if he pushes you away? What if he rejects you from even sharing what you've shared? Well, then verse 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So what do you do if he won't hear you? Well, take with you one or two more. The, the, the circle of people in the situation only becomes wider as the offending party refuses to listen. And if that stubborn, unrepentant attitude remains, they're next to be refused fellowship, as Jesus says, let him be to you like a heathen in verse 17. But I want you to think about how this would practically work. Right, I, I'm in a dispute with another guy. I, I go to him and he's offended me and say, listen, I can't believe what you did. Uh, let, let's just say it's a business deal in the body of Christ, right? He's a Christian, I'm a Christian, and he did something to me in business that, oh, well, look, it's going to hurt me really bad, and I'm so offended, and it's so unchristian of him, and I'm going to go to him and confront him. And so I confront him, and he says, what, you're crazy, you're the one who wronged me. And there's no hearing, there's no coming together, there's no dispute. And then we say, okay, look, i tell you what I'm going to do, mister. I've read this in Matthew chapter 18. I'm coming back to you with one or two other people, and we're really going to confront you. So you come with one or two other people. Now, what I want those other people to do, that one or two other people, what I want them to do is to be on my side against him, right? Now it's not one against one, now it's three against one, mister, what are you going to do? But that's not right, is it? The, the one or two more, what should they be doing? They, they shouldn't be just trying to help me win. They should be judging the situation with godly wisdom and discernment. And, and I'll have you know, most all of the conflicts that I've ever been with in the body of Christ 
there has been blame on both sides. Now look, I, I would like to tell you about some times in my life when the blame has been entirely on the other person's side and none on my side. Unfortunately, I just can't think of any of those occasions right now. I'm sure there's many of them in the back of my life, but for the life of I can't remember a single one. But I can remember many occasions when I was so sure that I was so right. And as another person was brought into the conflict and they looked at both sides and maybe as my heart softened from the anger or the bitterness that I was feeling, then I recognized that that person, they did in fact do me wrong, but I did them wrong too. And, and I need to repent of what I need to repent of and, and hope that God will move upon their heart to repent as they have as well. We need to come to this place where we understand that even though people will sin against us, it does not justify our sinning against them. And we do what we can to reconcile the relationship. We bring these two witnesses in and we have them judge the situation. But sadly, sometimes even in that situation, that person's heart remains hard. Listen, I pray that would be none of you. I, I have had the painful experience in the body of Christ where there's been a conflict. There's been a dispute, and, and I will say that there was fault on my side and there was fault on their side. And, and I've humbly brought myself to that person and I've said, listen, I'm so sorry. I know that what I did was wrong and there's just no defending it. W- would you please forgive me? And I, I just want to be forgiven for my part. And that person would not forgive. That person would not let go of it. C- can I say... I would hope that none of us would be like that. Never. That that we would be quick to forgive others. That we would be quick to resolve disputes like this when the other person does have a repentant heart. Though Jesus is recognizing that there will be some situations in the body of Christ where that other person will not repent. And so the coming with one or two more, it seems to go nowhere. Then what do you do? Only then and only after the person has been so hardened and so unable to deal with the people that have confronted them with their sin. Then he says, tell it to the church. He says, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, on the one hand, I say, ooh, yeah, good, now I can get him, right? A heathen and a tax collector. And then I think, well, how did Jesus treat heathens and tax collectors? He loved them. The the unrepentant one must be treated just as if we would a heathen and a tax collector, with, with great love and with the goal of bringing about a full repentance and reconciliation, this sense of being refused full standing and partition, uh, participation in the body of Christ, that's what Paul meant when he spoke in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about delivering such a one to Satan. He didn't mean putting them in a delivery truck and driving them over to Satan's warehouse or something like that. No, he meant they need to be put outside the circle of fellowship and protection of the church so that they might miss the fellowship of the saints. But even if someone would be treated in that way, how should you respond to them? Not with anger. How should you act if you see that person in the market, right? 
They're no longer welcome in the fellowship of the church because of their hardened unrepentance. How should you regard them if you see them? You should regard them as a heathen and tax collector, somebody who's not saved. And how should you treat somebody who's not saved? You should love them and you should try to win them to repentance. I remember dealing with a guy who was a very gifted young minister. Extremely gifted. Wow, this guy. had He had a youth ministry that exploded beyond his own church and was touching youth from the whole region. Amazing, amazing. He tended towards spiritual excess and and fantasies, if I could say so. And he became convinced that he and one young woman in his youth group, she was either a member of the youth group or barely out of it. I can't remember which. He became convinced that he and she were the two witnesses from the book of Revelation. And they had a special relationship. As you might imagine, this was of some concern to the man's wife, who thought that she had a special relationship with her husband. And in very painful circumstances, this man started the proceedings to divorce his wife. And we would meet, and I would plead with him. Don't do this. It's wrong. It's sinful. And he wouldn't turn. And I said to him, look, I'll I'll show you my friendship. I'll show you my care up to a point. But if this divorce goes through, if this divorce becomes a reality, then I have to treat you like an unbeliever. Well, the divorce went through, it's very sad to say. And I met him on a later occasion, and he wanted to talk to me in terms of Christian fellowship. He came up to me, we were actually at a meeting at at another church somewhere, and he came up to me and he wanted to just come up in the warm conversation of fellowship. You know how that is. Praise the Lord, brother, how's it going? Let me tell you what God's doing in my life. And I looked him in the eye and he said, listen, my friend, I don't want to hear anything from you except your repentance. Because this is what you need to do. It's painful when it comes to that in the body of Christ. But might I say, it's essential. There's a sense in which the unrepentant one is therefore chastened or disciplined by their being placed outside the blessings and the protections of fellowship. And listen, Jesus will back up this kind of discipline. Look at what he says in verse 18. He says, Assuredly, I say to you that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus is saying that this whole procedure is quite binding if it's done humbly and according to the word of God. Just as much as binding and loosing, we saw on a previous occasion where Jesus used it in terms of what would be allowed and what would not be allowed in the kingdom of God. Here he's saying those who are treating sin as pardonable or the reverse. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this verse. He said, each church has the keys of its own door. 
When those keys are rightly turned by the assembly below, the act is ratified or recognized above. That's how it is. When a church properly conducts discipline, God honors it from heaven. But again, it should not be so for us. I think that for the most part, how many conflicts among Christians could be solved if we would begin with a humble and lowly attitude? Could I bring it back to the beginning of the chapter? Like a child. How much it would be like that. Have you ever noticed children don't fight? Well, that's a lie, isn't it? Children fight all the time, don't they? Just like Christians. Children are fighting all the time. But have you ever noticed, too, that for the most part, children are so quick to make up. You know, little Sally and Susie, they were just, they're screaming at each other two minutes ago. And then now they're, they're playing just like they've been lifelong friends. One other thing about the nature of children, they, they find a way to make up quickly. That's how it should be among us in the body of Christ. Father, that is our prayer that you would make us humble like children, that you would show us, Lord, how to live a life that isn't concerned with our personal promotion and advancement, but rather, Lord, for your glory and trust, God, that you will advance us. And Father, we pray that you would teach us more and more about how we should live and conduct ourselves towards one another. We want to live as true citizens of your kingdom, preferring one another, loving one another, showing your goodness and grace to one another. Give us the strength and the willingness to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.